0: Martin, uh, one of our MOVE students from last summer, is going to come and read scripture today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, if you'd like to turn there and follow along. So that today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will be my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Luke. Before the and then, I've said it a couple times today, they're just facts. And then, something happens, and you have a story. And so we could put that to the test uh, with some examples. Uh, I want you to guess the story, okay? Here's, uh, here are the facts. There's a kid living under the staircase. He is not aware yet that he is a great wizard. And then, Hagrid shows up, and you've already guessed the story, right? Harry Potter, yes, and then. Or, how about this? A nerdy teenage kid is trying to navigate life, and his high school class goes on a field trip to a science lab, and while he's going by, he gets bit by a radioactive spider, and then... Spider-Man. Yes, Spider-Man. One more. Uh, They're really short people living in an area known as the Shire, and they have really hairy feet, and then... One of them discovered the ring that ruled them all, and we have Lord of the Rings, right? Yes. The and then events create the story, and the story changes who we are. We take um, 60 high school kids every summer to move because it changes their story. We take these kids, and we get them out of their element for a week, and uh, we take them on a 14-hour bus ride away from here. Uh, We change their routine. We deprive them of sleep. We send them down a a river uh, in a boat, uh, and sometimes we push them out. Uh, We set them in front of great Leaders and teachers who put Jesus in front of them. We give them authentic worship experiences. And somewhere in that week, Jesus usually shows up. And then the story gets written from there. And the strategy that we take isn't new. It's actually found in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus does the same thing with his disciples. They go to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was way north from the Sea of Galilee where his normal ministry stomping grounds were. It's a Gentile area. There are no crowds following them around anymore. They're away. It is actually a 30-mile journey from uh, Galilee, and if you are on foot, that's a 14-hour walk. And There's only one occasion that they go to this place called Caesarea Philippi, and this is it in Matthew chapter 16. Why in the world would Jesus take the time to to take a 14 hour journey away with his disciples? And the answer is in this place. Caesarea Philippi was ruled by Herod Philip, and he renamed the city in honor of himself but also in honor of the Caesar at the time, who was Tiberius, and he got some significant kickbacks for doing that. It was was worth his time to do that. And so he uh, named the town Caesarea Philippi, after Caesar and after himself, Philip. And if you were to go to Caesarea Philippi and go to the Chamber of Commerce, they would point you to the one thing that you have to see while you're in this place. It is a mountainous cliff of a rock and at the bottom of it was this cave. Uh, Josephus tells us that it was a fine cave and, and there was a really steep drop once you entered the cave. And at the bottom of the drop, there was this huge body of water and the depth of that water had never been plumbed. Nobody knew how deep it was. And underneath all of this were springs that actually fed the headwaters of the Jordan River. Okay? So if you're a Jewish person, all of a sudden already there are all kinds of historical memories and moments that you're thinking of because of the Jordan River. Just go through the Old Testament, the Jordan River pops up everywhere. And so it's not surprising that a place like this would also be a place of pagan worship. There were no less than 14 different temples dedicated to various ancient religions. The most prominent was a temple dedicated to the pagan god Pan. And Pan was, according to the narrative of the temple, the, one of the few gods who could actually cross into Hades or hell and then come back to the earth. And uh, if you think about it, and you weren't really a worshiping type, and you thought about the end of your life, and someday maybe I might end up in Hades, it might be good to have that pan guy on my side if he's the only one that can come back from there. And so you can imagine why people would go to this place and worship. Interestingly, this cave was therefore called the Gates of Hades in Jesus' day. One more attraction that would have been there would, be, would have been a massive white marble temple that was dedicated to the Roman Emperor Tiberius Caesar and to actually all of the other Caesars because in the people's minds, for sure, the Caesars were gods. They were like sons of men and they were worshipped as if they were gods. And so I have a picture of this place in Caesarea Philippi. You can see the rock bluff there and the cave and um, the headwaters of the Jordan River And there's an artist's rendering that I also have of what it might have looked like in Jesus' day. We have uh, massive temples and all kinds of areas of uh, pagan worship to the god Pan, to Caesar himself, to all kinds of other pagan gods. And it's in this setting that Jesus marches his disciples 14 hours so that they could sit in this place. And it's in this setting he asks this question, Who? Do people say the Son of Man is? And this title, the Son of Man, was something that Jesus always called himself. It was one of his favorite titles. And when you and I read it, it doesn't, make, it doesn't mean much to us. It kind of sounds like, oh, you're a son of man. Well, what else would you be a son of? I mean, you're a son of some guy somewhere, right? But to a Jewish audience... The way they would have heard it was really different. They would have gone back to Daniel chapter 7. And in that chapter, there's a prophecy that in the future, someday, a great majestic figure will appear in the heavens at the right hand of the the ancient of days of God himself. And he will be the son of man who will heal the universe. He will mend everything and put it back together. He will wipe all the tears away. And when Jesus shows up and he starts calling himself the son of man, to the people who were paying attention, uh, it meant something. To everybody else, it didn't mean a thing. And that's the thing. It could mean everything or it could mean nothing depending on what you were looking for. It's like Panera Bread. Anybody ever been to Panera Bread? Yes. Anybody know what Panera actually means? Oh, I don't see any hands. This will be fun. Yes. Panera is a a pane, is an Italian word. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it means bread, okay? And era is that thing that means what it means. Uh, It means a length of time in the English language, era. So panera literally means bread time. And when you go to Panera, that's what you think. It's bread time, right? That's why you go there, because it's bread time, And so how many of you, you probably didn't know that before, I didn't see any hands, but how many of you will never forget that the next time you go to Panera? Yeah, absolutely. You will think, I got to go to there because it's bread time. Yeah. And that's the title, the Son of Man. It could mean everything or it could be nothing. And I think that it was the favorite title of Jesus for himself because it's still that way. People who aren't looking for a Savior because I'm doing fine on my own, thank you very much. They just see Jesus as another guy. They just see Jesus as some great good teacher or somebody we should emulate. Maybe he's a good example for us. If if that's all he is, good luck with that. But to those of us who understand that we need something, to those of us who have come to the end of ourselves, to those of us who have looked at all of our goodness and our righteousness and we've concluded, you know what, it's not enough. It's not nearly enough to us. Jesus is everything we've been looking for. He's either one or the other. And so to his disciples, he's asking this question, who do people say that I am? And their first response is, well, the people out there, uh, some say that you're like John the Baptist. Some say that you're like Elijah. Some say that you're like the prophet Jeremiah. And all of those prophets were, were very high on people's list. They had very good standing. And so uh, the public perception of Jesus was very high. But at the end of the day, it's easy to say what everybody else is saying. That's why yesterday, all you heard was, oh, Oklahoma State should get into the tournament. Because that's easy to say. Everybody wants to say that right now. It takes real guts to stand up and say, no, Oklahoma should be in the tournament. No basketball fans here? Okay. All right. All right. It's easy. It takes guts to declare what we really believe. And this pivotal moment is a no-going-back moment. Jesus is asking, what do... Not, not what do the people out there believe about me. What do you? What do you believe about me? Now, there were lots of other confessions before this little trip up to Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16. When they first met Jesus in John chapter 1, a few of them called him the Lamb of God. Somebody actually even called him Messiah way back then. Um, When they're all in the boat and Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water and then Jesus calms the storm, they say, truly you are the Son of God. In in John chapter 6, they say, you are the Holy One of God. It's not as though they have never confessed these things before. But this confession is different because Jesus asks for it. The others could have been just emotional responses to maybe a great miracle or maybe wishful thinking on this part, on their part. I hope that you're the Messiah. But this one, Jesus asks for, who do you say that I am? And remember where they are. It's a very dramatic picture. Here's this Galilean who's homeless and penniless, and he has 12 very ordinary men around him. And at the moment, the religious authorities, 14 hours journey away, are plotting to kill him and destroy him because he's a heretic. And he stands in this Place that's littered with temples of uh, pagan gods. The Greek gods are represented there. The history of Israel is represented there, with the Jordan River. Uh, the Caesar is is worshipped there. Uh, the gates of Hades are are there because uh, that's where they were seemed to be located or deemed to be located. And he stands in this place and he looks his disciples in the eye and he says, "Who do you think?" That I am. And William Barclay says this. There are a few scenes where Jesus' consciousness of his own divinity shines out with a more dazzling light. It's as if Jesus deliberately set himself against all of the background of the world's options. You can worship all of these other things. And I'm going to put myself in the middle of them. And I'm going to ask you, what do you think about me? What do you think about me? Peter, Peter. Simon is actually what the text says. Did you notice that? Simon Peter pipes up. And he's Simon Peter in the text because, he, of course, he's Simon. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He's kind of vacillating at times. He's always kind of moving around. He's always changeable. He's, he's never really constant. At some points, he's just flat-out cowardly. But also, at the very same time, he's Peter. He's brawny. He's bold. He's willing. He's strong. He wants the team to win, and he wants to help the team win in any way he can help them. And it's really hard to tell in Scripture exactly when Jesus changed his name. In John chapter 1, when they first uh, meet Jesus, there's an account of Jesus meeting Simon and saying at that moment, I'm going to call you Peter from now on because that's what you're going to be. In Mark chapter 3, there's a list of the apostles and they go through and they come to Simon and there's this little parenthetical note that says, and he was called Peter. And here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus decidedly gives him the name Peter and it means rock. And he does so because of the way Peter answers. Peter answers for the 12 and he makes this declaration. When he got out of the boat and said, Jesus, if it's you, come ask me to walk on the water. And he walked on the water. That was a display of trust. No question. But here is another clear display of trust, and it's no less significant. Here, Simon has thought about what he sh- should say. He- he's weighed the situation. He's putting together what he knows of this man in front of him, Jesus. And he's thinking through the implications of his statement. And he realizes more than ever that no one who wasn't God himself could have done the things that Jesus did. God himself is the one he's been following. God alone walks on water. God alone can take a few loaves of bread and feed 5,000 people. God alone can heal blind men. God alone can cast out demons. And he realizes he's been following God himself. He's been taught by God himself. And he articulates this on behalf of the group. And this confession that he makes is the piece on which everything else rests. And he says this, we get it. The reason that you're able to do all of these things is because you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now it's doubtful that Peter could explain with any kind of theological accuracy, the statement that he just made at the end of the day, the statement that he was making was this, Jesus, you are the king that I will give my life to. In the middle of all the other options that I've got behind me, you are the king that I will give my life to. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that confession that Peter makes is still the confession that we make. And it's still the confession that a lot, most of us in this room have made. It's the confession that we need to make every day. And so I'm going to ask you to confess with me once again. If you've made that confession before, would you just repeat after me? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus makes that the question. He makes that the and then moment for his disciples. And the rest for Peter is the story. And the rest for us is the story. And what kind of story will be written because we are willing to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter gives his answer. And for Peter, Peter says, uh, Jesus says, Peter, blessed are you. You didn't learn this on your own. God himself had a part in your answer. And I tell tell you again, you are Peter. It means petros is the Greek word. It means a smaller stone or a loose stone. You are Peter, but on this rock. Petra is the Greek word. And it means bedrock or mountain or maybe the 80s Christian band, Petra red is the color of the blood that's like, anybody no okay all right there's like three of you over there thank you very much for the for the you know um i will build my church on this rock what rock is he talking about he's talking about the rock of confession that peter has just made That's that's the thing on which it all hinges. I will build my church on that truth that I am the Messiah. And it will be my church as opposed to God's church. That was a huge claim. He was making the claim that he himself is God because it will be my church. And it will be a church that will never die. It will be a church that even the gates of Hades will not overcome. Throw that picture up one more time. The the gates of Hades will not overcome. The power that, that is in that place, the power of death will not have any power anymore because of what I'm going to do. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to defeat death. And the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. My church will never die. And this confession that builds the church All of this hope and future come from impulsive and unstable Simon. But this confession changes everything. And Jesus looks at him and says, There it is. That's who I knew you could be. You are a rock. What made the difference? It's the confession. The confession is everything. The confession is a rock cliff that will be the foundation for the church of living stones. That's what Peter will later write in even his letter. He will say that you and I are built on the foundation of this. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we all are each living stones built into the church that is based on the foundation of this confession. It's the confession that makes the church. It's the confession that is everything. It's the confession that leads to life. And it's that confession that Jesus asks of you today. Who do you say that I am? That's the question. It's still for you and me. And here's the thing. If Simon teaches us anything, he teaches us this, that you can never say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and still Stay the same old Simon. It's inconsistent. He invites us to trust in who he is. To trust that he is the one that will put everything back to right. That he is the one that will mend the universe. That he is the one that will wipe every tear from our eyes. And we do so in this statement. But in that statement there is this implicit Mild warning that if we do accept him, if we do trust him, if we do say, I do believe, then there's a certain disruption that will naturally happen in our lives. There is no confession without change. That's what Simon teaches us. Simon will eventually have to become Peter, change will be inevitable. Part of what Jesus was saying when he gave Peter this new name is, You'll never be the same. Because you've said, I'm the king that you'll give your life to, you will never be the same. You'll be different from now on. And in the Bible, a name was often an expression of the calling that a person had, or maybe the potential of what a person could be. And so when a nature changed, a person usually changed their name. And that's why when Simon's direction in life is going to be changed, Jesus changes his name. And so here's Simon, one of Jesus' disciples, impulsive, presumptuous, sometimes slow on the uptake, right? He's self-seeking. He's changeable. He's never constant. He's sometimes cowardly. And this guy, this big, dumb fisherman, Jesus looks at him and he says, Simon, I'm coming into your life, and it's never going to be the same. I'm going to be the force of disruption in your life. I'm going to turn you into a leader, a leader with insight. I'm going to turn you into a leader with clarity, a leader with righteous stubbornness. You're going to be like one of these cliffs, like the one behind me now. Uh, Imagine if it were on the seacoast and the sea was constantly beating against it and the cliff does nothing. It never shudders. It never moves. Nothing. You're going to be that. You're going to be a rock because I'm going to make you that. The daily confession of who Jesus is to us is our and then moment. The and then moment can change us more than anything in life with Jesus. It changes who we are. It changes our name. It changes our destiny. And the truth today is that Jesus not only has a new name for Peter, he has a new name for you. And he has a new name for me. If you were to name yourself today, aside from your given name, what would it be? There's a list uh, on your sermon notes in your bulletin of some possibilities that we thought, you know, these are some names that maybe people struggle with labeling themselves. Would you say, I'm worthless? Is that the name you would give yourself today? Would you say, I'm selfish? Is that the label you would put on yourself today? Am I rejected? Or am I harsh tongued? Or am I guilty? Or fearful? Or doubtful? Or angry? Or anxious? Maybe the name you would call yourself isn't on that list. That's okay. We have a basket for that. It's the unnamed. We don't know what the name is, but you do. And you know that Jesus would call you the opposite. And so, what we're going to do today, as I have the band come forward, is we're going to worship as we close. We're going to sing a couple songs. And during those two songs, we want you to uh, do a couple things. Number one is make that confession make it in your head. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Make it to Him. And on the heels of that confession, the second thing we want you to do is come and go to the basket that might identi- you might identify with today and take a rock. And on the bottom of that rock, we've written a new name. And maybe that's going to be your new name for a week. Maybe that's going to be your new name for the rest of your life. I don't know how God will use this. But would you commit, number two, not only to make the confession, but number two, to whatever that name is, would you commit to live into that new name this week? Maybe your name today is bitterness. But... I came to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then my name was changed to compassion. Maybe you would say, my name is guilty today, but I came to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and now my name is innocent. I don't know what you would call yourself today. I absolutely know that Jesus would call you something vastly different because of what he's done. Because of his name, a new name awaits each one of us. This is your and then moment. There's no confession without change. And so how will your story play out today? Would you stand? Let's sing.